Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, remember when we used to be able to go to the movies? So I want to take a quick poll among moviegoers here. How many of you like the previews, the preview of coming attractions, and how many of you wish they'd skip the previews and get right to the movie? Okay, so we'll take this poll. If you're at home watching, you still got to raise your hand. Okay, how many votes for I like the previews? All right, how many? I wish they'd skip the previews and get to the movie. Okay, previews win. And I love previews. And I'm married to a woman who thinks they're a total waste of time, which creates an argument every time we're about to go to the movies with respect to what time we leave to get there because I want to be there right on time, in my seat, popcorn in hand when the previews begin. And my wife is dragging her heels to get out of the house, and she says, it doesn't matter when we get there, there's going to be 15 minutes of mindless previews. Well, I don't think previews are mindless. In fact, I make mental notes. I'm doing some thinking as I'm watching the previews. I'm thinking, oh, that's a movie to see with my grandkids. Or, or that's, you know, that war movie, I'm coming back with a bud to see that one. Or that, that chick flick, you know, that might be a future date with Sue. All right, or that movie, oh gosh, that's awful. I'm never going to see that one. I like previews. And today we're going to talk about previews of coming attractions, not previews at the movies, previews in the Bible, God's Word. Now, many of you know that the New Testament, the second half of the Bible, is all about Jesus and instructions about how to follow Jesus. But what is the first half of the Bible? What is the Old Testament about? I think it would be fair to say that the Old Testament is a preview of Jesus. I mean, this is what Jesus himself says about the Old Testament scriptures. After Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected, he had a conversation with two of his disciples, and this is what he says to them in Luke 24. He says, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things, the cross, and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures, talking about the Old Testament, concerning himself. All the scriptures concerning himself. So the Old Testament points to Jesus. Now, there are several ways in which the Old Testament does this. Sometimes it's just straightforward prophecies. Uh, Micah 5.2, good example this time of year. Uh, Written 700 years before Jesus, Micah says that one day God is going to send a a world ruler who will be born in the insignificant small town of Bethlehem. Who do we know that was born in Bethlehem? Jesus. Or Isaiah 53, written about the same time as Micah. Isaiah says that God is going to send a servant who will be pierced for our transgressions. Jesus was nailed to the cross to pay for our sins. So the Old Testament points to Jesus through prophecies. Another way it foreshadows Christ, though, is through certain roles, R-O-L-E-S. For example, the role of the king. Israel had a succession of kings. Most of them were terrible leaders, which left the people longing for a good king, a righteous king, a majestic king. 
It left them longing for King Jesus or the, the role of the high priest, the dude who would uh, every year offer the sacrifices of animals to uh, cover, to atone for the sins of the people. But it left people wondering, you know, will, will a sacrifice ever be offered that is so amazing that it covers all sins for all times? And of course, Jesus eventually comes along as the high priest who offers himself a life of infinite worth. So prophecies, roles in the Old Testament, objects, there are objects that point to Christ. You say, like what? Well, Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark, a group of people is saved from the wrath of God, the judgment of God on the ark. Peter, in his New Testament epistles, points to Noah and the ark and says, yeah, this is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Okay, or, or what about the, the Passover lamb, the lamb that was slain and its blood was sprinkled on the doorposts of the, of the home so the angel of death would pass over? Jesus is the Passover lamb. Or what about the temple? You know, the temple was that object in Old Testament times that symbolized the presence of God. If you want to do an encounter God, this is where you found him, at the temple. Now, Jesus is the temple. He's the full revelation of God. So prophecies and roles and objects and some people in Old Testament times foreshadow Christ. They're a prefiguring of Christ, like Moses, the deliverer, who delivers people from slavery. Jesus is the deliverer. Or Jonah, the dude that spent three days and nights in the belly of a fish and then was resurrected, so to speak. Or, or how about Isaac? What do you know about Isaac? Isaac foreshadows Christ, and it's his life that we're going to take a look at today. So I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15, and welcome to part two of a four-part Bible Savvy series. It's called Bible Savvy because we are tracking with Christ Community Church's daily Bible reading schedule. So if you're following this schedule, you're going to read the passages this week that the sermon covers today. And this is just our way of trying to motivate you to pick up one of those schedules that you could get uh, at our website or through our mobile app and to follow along in Scripture. Become a daily Bible reader. And today's passage, uh, you know, in the book, is in the book of Genesis, and that's because our, our reading schedule is in Genesis right now, as we're, we're taking a look at the forefathers of our faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and today it's all about Isaac. Isaac foreshadows Christ, and there are three significant ways in which he does this. Three ways in which Isaac points to Jesus. Number one, and by the way, there's an outline on your mobile app so you could fill it in as we go. Number one, a miracle birth. A miracle birth. Uh, I googled miracle births this week because I was interested. Is there any story out there that is as amazing as Isaac's birth story? A birth story that points to Jesus' birth story. And I read a bunch of amazing miracle birth stories. None of them holds a candle to Isaac's story. So three aspects of this miracle birth of Isaac's that points to Jesus' birth. Okay, the first is it was prophesied. 
Okay, it was, it was prophesied ahead of time. Now, if your Bible is open to Genesis 15, God is having a conversation with Abraham, who is Isaac's daddy. Not yet. Isaac hasn't been conceived yet. But this is what happens. God takes Abraham outside, verse 5. God took him outside and he said, look up at the sky, count the stars if indeed you can count them. And then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, what makes this prophecy so amazing, friends, is that at this point in time, Abraham and his wife Sarah, they're childless, and they've been trying for years to have kids with no success. But God takes him outside, says, look at the stars, you're going to have a descendant who's going to be the, the beginning of a train, a boatload of descendants, as many as the stars in the sky. In fact, a, a couple of chapters later, in chapter 18, God renews this prophecy, states it again. This time, three heavenly visitors stopped by Abraham's tent one day. Chapter 18, verse 10, then one of them said to Abraham, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. So this is before Sarah has conceived, and there's a prophecy, she's going to have a son. Now, I have three kids, and none of their births was prophesied ahead of time. You know, but Isaac's birth was, and Jesus' birth was. 700 years before the birth of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah, uh, one of the Christmas prophecies we, we hear a lot about, the prophet Isaiah says this in Isaiah 7, verse 14, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Well, seven centuries later, an angel appears to a guy by the name of Joseph in a dream, and he says, this Isaiah prophecy that everybody knows about, God's about to fulfill it in the life of your fiance, Mary. She's going to give birth to a son, a prophesied birth, miraculous. Let's go back to Isaac. Another amazing aspect of Isaac's birth was that it was physically impossible Abraham and Sarah were too old to have a baby. They were far beyond childbearing years. Chapter 17, you might as well just keep your Bible open to these chapters in Genesis. Drop down to verse 17. This is Abraham's reaction to God announcing that a baby is on the way. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 99? Excuse me, at the age of 90? You know, it's impossible, impossible. Now, I, I, I looked this up because I was curious. You know, before the age of in vitro fertilization and all the things we do now to extend the childbearing years of a woman, uh, back in the days of natural childbirth, what's the oldest woman who ever gave birth to a child? And it was a woman who gave birth to a child at age 50. Sarah's got that beat, friends, by 40 years. Sarah's 90 years old when she gives birth to Isaac. Miraculous. And so was Jesus' birth. Mary and Joseph didn't have a problem with age. You know, they were a young, engaged couple but they had never had sex. 
And so when the angel Gabriel shows up and tells uh, Mary, you're about to conceive a, a child, her response, and this is in Luke, Luke chapter 1, verses 34 and 35, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? You know, even though she'd never been to freshman biology class, she knew how babies are made. The angel continues, well, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Miraculous. One final aspect of Isaac's miracle birth that pointed to Jesus' miracle birth, both baby boys were given names that turned out to be highly significant. Okay, Isaac's name means laughter. His name means laughter. When the angel told Abraham in Genesis, Genesis 18 that a baby boy would be born same time next year, Sarah was eavesdropping on the conversation and she laughed. Genesis 18, verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I'm worn out in my Lord, Abraham, he's old, Will I now have this pleasure? And then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Let me tell you something. Sarah wasn't the only one who was laughing about this birth. When she gave birth to Isaac, everybody shook their head. Everybody smiled. Everybody chuckled out loud. They were looking at a 90-year-old woman nursing her infant child. Laughter, a significant name. What about the name Jesus? Jesus means the Lord saves. This is what the angel told Joseph to name his coming baby. When uh, Joseph had the dream, Matthew 1.21, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means the Lord saves. So, wow, Isaac foreshadows Christ in terms of a miracle birth, a birth that was prophesied ahead of time, a birth that was physically impossible, a birth that was marked by the giving of a significant name. Now, before I, I leave this point, uh, since, we're, since we're talking about babies, since we're talking about kids here for a moment, this has nothing to do with the Isaac story, but did you know that this weekend we celebrate National Adoption Day? And did you know that there are more than 18,000 children in the foster care system of Illinois alone, and that over 3,000 of these kids are just waiting to get adopted? Did you know that? Did you know that Christ Community Church is passionately pro-life? Which means that we're not only opposed to the killing of babies through abortion, we are also really into the providing of homes for vulnerable children and seeing to it that children and their moms are well cared for. Did, did you know that we actually have a financial fund to help people who would like to adopt kids but they can't afford to do it? Did you know that? Check it out online. If this interests you, if this is something that, you know, you'd like to uh, investigate further, go online if you would. Now back to Isaac. Here's the second way in which he foreshadows Christ. A, a sacrificial death and amazing resurrection. 
the next part of Isaac's story is so powerful that I want to read a lengthy portion of it to you from Genesis 22. So follow along in your Bibles as I read, beginning at verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and he said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide for the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God. Because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Wow. Now there is so much to this story that we could unpack, but what I mostly want you to see today are the parallels between uh, Isaac and and Jesus. Isaac foreshadows Jesus in, in an almost sacrificial death and amazing resurrection. Let me point out several similarities between the two stories. Uh, first, location. Location. So Mount Moriah, the place where Abraham offered his son Isaac as a sacrifice, eventually became the site of a city called Jerusalem. This is where Jesus was sacrificed on a cross almost 2,000 years later to pay the penalty for our sin. So same place. Same place. A second similarity. The beloved son. The beloved son. The the, the word son appears ten times here in Genesis 22. It begins with God's initial instructions to Abraham. Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, the son you love. Take Isaac and go to Mount Moriah and I want you to sacrifice him there. Isaac was dearly loved by his daddy, Abraham. Abraham had waited years and years for this boy, and now God was asking him to offer Isaac as a sacrifice? Doesn't this remind you of Jesus? When Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River at the beginning of his earthly ministry, a voice, a cosmic voice boomed from the heavens saying, This is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. 
And yet God offered this son as a sacrifice for our sins. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Why, Why did Jesus have to die? Because the penalty for our sins, the penalty for thumbing our nose at Almighty God, the penalty of pretending to be our own God, running our own life, the penalty of turning our back on God, the penalty of disconnecting, alienating ourselves from the one who is the giver of life, the penalty is death. So God requires our death. And yet he is willing to accept a substitute, someone who will die in our place. But, but who would do that? And and whose death would be of such infinite worth that it would cover everyone who wants this person to be their substitute? There's only one person in the history of the world who qualifies. The Son of God. The eternal Son of God whose life is of infinite worth. Jesus. Here's another similarity in the death's of Isaac and Jesus, the almost death of Isaac. It's the willing cooperation in this story of of Isaac that foreshadows Jesus' willingness to go to the cross for you and me. Uh, Isaac was a strapping young man. Now, the text doesn't say how old he was at this point in time, but it does tell us that when Abraham and Isaac got to the base of Mount Moriah, Abraham told his servants to wait there with the donkey, and he was going with Isaac to the top of the mountain, and then he loaded all the firewood onto the back of his son, and the two of them trudged up the mountain. So we can assume that at this point in the story, Isaac was a a young man in pretty good shape, and don't forget, Abraham was ancient. So how do you think Abraham managed at the top of Mount Moriah to to tie up his son and place him on the altar? No way this could have happened without Isaac's cooperation. No way. So Isaac willingly cooperated, pointing to Jesus' willing cooperation as he faced crucifixion. You might recall in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that Jesus was arrested, he prayed to the Heavenly Father, knowing what what, what was in front of him, terrified at the prospect of it, sweating drops of blood, and he prayed, Father, if there's any other way to get the job done, please. And then he immediately added, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And moments later, soldiers arrived on the scene to arrest him, and Peter, in an act of bravado, pulls out his sword and lops off one of the guy's ears. And Jesus says, Peter, put your sword away, and heals the guy's ear. And then he says, Pete, really? I could call thousands of angels right now if I wanted to, and they would rescue me. But Jesus didn't call for backup friends. Jesus willingly went to the cross. You know, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2, verse 20, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus gave himself for me. 
He didn't go to the cross because the Father made him do it, forced him to do it. He didn't go to the cross because wicked men somehow triumphed and took his life from him. Jesus went to the cross because he chose to give his life for you. He chose to give his life for me. One last similarity between the death, almost death of Isaac and the death of Christ, the hope of resurrection. Uh, Some critics of the story in Genesis 22, they say, you know, Abraham was not commendably obedient. You know, he was certifiably insane. We're, We're talking child sacrifice here. That's crazy. But what the critics miss is that Abraham was absolutely certain that God had some some surprise up his celestial sleeve. Abraham knew that Isaac was the the fulfillment of God's promise to bless the entire world through his descendants. And so there was no way, there was no way, in Abraham's mind, there was no way that God would allow Isaac to be killed unless God had a plan to bring him back from the dead. Now, if your Bible is still open to... Genesis 22, look at what Abraham says to his servants, verse 5. He says, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there, up Mount Moriah. We will worship and then we will come back to you. We will come back. Abraham doesn't say, and then I will come back to you. We will come back to you. In other words, Isaac and I. The New Testament writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews 12, verse 19, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. God can raise the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. Do you believe that? Oh, come on, let's make this participative, okay? Do you believe that? Yes. Have you ever surrendered your life to the risen Christ who reigns at the right hand of God, the Father? Jesus lives today, and today he offers forgiveness for sins that would otherwise doom you and me to eternal destruction. And today Jesus offers new life, new life today under his leadership, to everyone who will surrender to him. Have you ever done that? Have you submitted yourself to the kingship of Jesus? Now, if you have, and you're already a Christ follower, here's a bonus application I'd like to draw from this part of the story. I just want to acknowledge that there are situations in which we need to trust that God has a good plan for our lives. Just like Abraham trusted God, that God would resurrect Isaac if necessary. Maybe your hope has been crushed recently. This is a hope-crushing time. Maybe it's been the loss of your job or a breakup with your boyfriend. Maybe it's a chronic illness or a struggling marriage. Maybe it's infertility or or singleness or a loved one with mental illness or the constant stress of COVID. Have you been telling yourself, my situation is hopeless? God raised Jesus from the dead. And God is fully capable of bringing something good out of your difficult situation. And so I say, trust him. 
trust him. You get it? Good. Third, third way in which Isaac foreshadows Christ, a loving marriage. Uh, In less than two weeks, Sue and I are going to celebrate our 43rd wedding anniversary. Got married at age five, if you do the, the, the math there. And I could still remember, 43 years later, I could still remember the first time I met Sue. It was fall semester, freshman year of college. Uh, Our dorm was having a party. We invited her dorm. Uh, I picked her out of the crowd, and we started a conversation. And I I was hooked. In fact, at the end of the night, I walked her back to her dorm, and we stood outside her dorm door for probably an additional hour or two just talking the night away. It was like God had dropped her out of the sky into my lap. Now, those of you who are married, some of you have uh, love stories like that where it was pretty easy to find your your spouse. God just kind of, bloop, just dropped her or him in your lap. Others of you had a difficult time finding the right person. Uh, Maybe you went through 12 mistakes on the uh, the dating website before you found that that right individual. Or or maybe you're looking still and you're hoping someday you'll find that right person. Well, Isaac had a very difficult time finding a wife. And the story is told in Genesis 24. In fact, it's the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. It's so long we don't have time to read it. I'm going to have to just sum it up for you. Okay, it begins with Daddy Abraham deciding it's time his son gets married and he's going to help find a wife, which was, uh, this is how it was done in the ancient culture of the day. Okay, so Abraham calls in a servant and he says, you know, I don't want one of the local Canaanite girls for my son Isaac. I want a girl from my hometown. And so I want you to go get one for me and uh, bring her back. Now, Abraham's hometown was hundreds of miles away across a desert. So the servant loads up 10 camels of uh, gifts with gifts that he plans to give to uh, this woman, young woman he'd meet, and her family. And he sets out across the desert. And the whole way he's praying, 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 oh, God, help me. And when he gets to the edge of town, Abraham's hometown, he stops at the city limits because there is a well there and he wants to get a drink and refresh his camels. And he comes up with an idea. He prays, okay, God, this is the way we'll work it. There are young women coming and going and drawing water for their families. And I'm going to ask one of them for a drink. And if she says, I'll not only give you a drink, I will water your camels, I'll know that's the girl for Isaac. By the way, if you're a single guy, don't do this. Okay, this is not prescriptive in in scripture, not the way it should be done, but this is the way it worked. And a gorgeous young woman by the name of Rebecca came to draw water and the servant said, could I get a drink? And she said, sure, and let let me get water for your camels. This was an arduous task, friends. There, There were 10 camels. A camel drinks 20 gallons of water. Do the math. If she had a one-gallon jar with her, she made 200 trips to the well to draw water for the servant's camels. And so the servant is thinking to himself, she is beautiful, she is kind, she is industrious. And he says, hey, can I go home with you and meet your parents? And so he, he goes with her to meet the fam. 
And he tells them the story about Abraham and his son Isaac who needs a bride and the trip across the desert hundreds of miles. And then he, he spots Rebecca and she offers him a drink and waters his camels. And it takes several days of coaxing along with 10 camels worth of gifts for the parents to finally say, okay, this seems to be a God thing. We're going to let Rebecca return with you to marry Isaac. Now, you could read this for yourself in Genesis 24. You will read it uh, this week if you're following the Bible Savvy reading schedule. By the way, just a side note of interest here, this is the only story in, in the entire Bible where smoking is mentioned. In the King James Version, it says that when Rebecca saw Isaac, she lighted off her camel. Come on, some of you are going to be telling that over Thanksgiving dinner, and you know it, all right? Listen to the closing verse of the story, verse 67 of Genesis 24. It says, Isaac brought Rebekah into the tent of his mother Sarah, and he married Rebekah, and so she became his wife, and he loved her. She became his wife, and he loved her. Now, some of you are wondering, how in the world... Does this part of the story point to Jesus? Jesus was single. Jesus never got married, right? Well, according to the New Testament, when we surrender our lives to Christ, we be, listen, we become part of his bride, the church. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians, writing to a relatively new group of Christ followers. He says, I promised you to one husband, to Christ. And then in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul gives this advice to married couples. This is Ephesians 5, verses 25 and 28. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in the same way husbands ought to love their wives. Now, I want you to note something significant in the verses that I just quoted for you. Although Jesus loves every one of his followers individually, it's not as individuals that we're the bride of Christ. Okay, Jesus loves you individually. Jesus loves you personally, but you're not the bride of Christ singly. Together, we form the bride of Christ, and Jesus loves his bride. Jesus loves the church. One of my favorite hymns is a hymn called The Church's One Foundation. I think we got the lyrics here. Let me read them to you. The Church's One Foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Jesus loves his bride, the church. Jesus searched for this bride in a way that was oh, far more strenuous than the effort put into finding a bride for Isaac. You know, sometimes I, I, I hear people say, well, you know, I like Jesus, but I'm not into church. They have just insulted Christ. It would be like you saying to me, Jim, I really like you, but I don't care for Sue. Well, guess what? Sue is my wife. She is the love of my life. If you're into me, you're into Sue. So what does this mean for us? 
Christ wants us to value the church, to appreciate the church, to love the church. So if you're an explorer who's kind of checking out the Christian faith, understand this. When you surrender your life to Christ, you become part of his bride. You need to plug into a local church. This means that if you've been a Christ follower but not connected to a church, you know, you need to wake up to the realization that the Christian faith, the Christian life is not about Jesus and you. The Christian life is about Jesus and his bride, Jesus and his church. And if you're connected to a church like Christ Community Church, but over COVID, that connection has been waning a bit. There's been a bit of disinterest set in. Let me plead with you on Jesus' behalf. Jesus who loves the church. He wants you worshiping with and giving to and praying for and serving the church. Even in the midst of COVID, find a way to do it, Jesus would say, because I love my church, love my bride. Isaac foreshadows Christ, a miracle birth, a sacrificial death, an amazing resurrection and a loving marriage. Would you pray with me? Lord God, thank you for what we learn about Jesus through the life of Isaac. And we are especially struck at the lengths to which you would go, Christ, giving your life for us so that we could be forgiven and have new life. And I would pray for anyone who's never surrendered never made you the Savior and King of their lives, that even now in the quietness of their hearts, they would be surrendering to you and saying, take it all, take my life. I want to be yours. And God, for those of us who've gotten lazy in our engagement with the church, help us to realize this isn't about a one-on-one -on -one relationship with you alone. It's about being part of your overall bride whom you passionately love and give us a love for your church. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.